So uh, recently, I took my daughter to school. I offered to park, to walk her in like I normally do, hand in hand, all the way to her classroom. And she said, no, Dad, I got it this time. You just dropped me off just like all the other cars. And I thought, oh, this is the transition that I've been very, 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 very uh, <laughs> trying to avoid. And so I dropped my little independent firstborn off and whisk away, and she walks in, head held high. And we know for quite a while that she's an independent little girl. We're proud of the way she is, and we're excited about as she continues to grow older. And we've seen this several times. My wife interacted with this independence this last summer. It was her, um, our two daughters, and some of my family members, and they go to a water park, and they're at the water park. Doesn't warmth and water park sound good right now, by the way? I just thought about that. And so they're at a water park, and it's a very large slide. And so my daughter... Um, wants to go over to the slide, uh, go, stand in line, go all the way to the top, and eventually go down the slide. My wife, knowing that she, she's not probably not going to be able to handle it all, says, I'll go with you. No, I got it on my own. She goes and stands in line all by herself. She Somewhere between the start of the stairs and the top of the stairs, which was rather tall, she gets scared, really scared. And halfway in between, she freezes. And when she freezes, she starts screaming at the top of her lungs. So here you are, my wife's at a water park talking to some family members, and all of a sudden she's like, I recognize that scream and that cry somewhere. And so, and so Sarah makes a beeline for that slide. And have you ever been in line for something for quite a while and then someone pushes you aside? Have you ever felt that before? Okay, that's exactly what everyone is feeling like at this moment, because my wife is mama bear coming out, get out of my way, climbing up the slide, and there frozen in the middle of the steps is my unwilling little girl. And my wife gets her, brings her back down, <laughs> my little girl unwilling, and my wife loving, willing mother. And I t tell you that story because it has great, great significance for us today. Because see, in, in our culture, in our life, we as individuals, no matter what our age is, no matter where we come from, we are racked with brokenness, racked with sin. And we fail to recognize often how this brokenness and how this sin, it, it plays out in an unwilling spirit, in a begrudgingly resistant type of attitude. And we often cover this up with manners and niceties, especially this time of year. But really, if you were to strip it all away, what we would see is this self-preservation to the core. Here, I, I read this this last week, and I thought this was so, so accurate. These two friends, they go out to a restaurant, and they order the exact same dish. It's like a, a fish platter, a large piece of fish so they continue their conversation and the kitchen prepares their food. The kitchen brings out their, their, their dinner and they brought both of their entrees on one plate and they set the one plate in front of the one friend and on that plate is a large piece of fish and then a very small piece of fish. And so the friend takes the other friend's empty plate and he puts a small piece of fish on the other plate and hands the other friend the small piece of fish and the friend with the small fish says, wait a minute, do you see what you've done? And the friend with the big fish says, yes, I know exactly what I've done. And the friend with the small fish says, well, you gave me the small fish. And the friend with the big fish says, well, what would you have liked me to have done? And the friend with the small fish said, well, I would have given you the big fish and I would have taken the small fish. And the friend with the big fish says, well, look, I've got it. Problem solved, <laughs> right? 
And, and that's exactly what we do. We are unwilling. And you know, as, if, if there were children involved, they wouldn't have been so nice. They just would have been like, give me the big fish, let's go home. And that's the, way, the end of it. But for us, we just kind of hide and persevere our life. And this unwillingness that we have, it's not just about putting others above, ourselves above others, though. It flushes out in all kinds of different ways. I want you to look at what Paul David Tripp says. And we're going to put it on the screen for you. And I just want to read it out together, okay? Uh, I'll, I'll read it for you. We're often unwilling to do what God says if it doesn't make sense to us. We're often unwilling to inconvenience ourselves for the needs of someone else. We're regularly unwilling to wait. We're, we're often unwilling to be open and honest. We're too often unwilling to consider the loving rebuke of another. We struggle to be willing to say no to our wrong thoughts and desires. We often struggle to be willing to answer God's ministry call. Often, we are unwilling to admit we are wrong. Too often, we struggle to serve willingly and to give generously. Unwillingness is one of sin's powerful, damaging results. And and we see this in our culture. Just a couple quick examples for you. One, there's three NFL analysts on TV that just recently were all convicted of sexual misconduct and harassment. And recently, there was a woman who got on a plane, and she, start, she lit up a cigarette. And, and, the, and, the, and the, the stewardess like, man, you got to put that out. And she, got so, she was so unwilling, she threatened to kill everybody on the plane. That's a true story. I mean, and we all know this, when you order a present on Amazon... You have to guard the present. Why? Because people are literally going to come to your doorstep and steal your packages. We live in an unwilling world, don't we? If you're just joining us today for the first time, we've been in the series called Born to You. And we've been looking at Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 and going verse by verse through these two incredible chapters. And we're going to look today together, all together, at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you have a Bible, or if you have a tablet or a smartphone, we'd love for you to open and, or look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You're more than willing to look at any of those. And if you'd like to, there's a Bible in front of you. Get that out. Use that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, hey, take that Bible home. It'd be our gift to you. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning there, I, I want to first start out with this, that look, I know that many of you here today have probably read or heard or heard of what we're about to look at. And you're probably like, oh, I know about this. I've read this before. But what I'd love for you to do is I would love for you today to look at this with new eyes and to be open to what you may learn and how your heart may be literally transformed. As we're looking at these seven verses, what I want to do is I want to kind of split them into two sections. The first section is verses 1 through 5, and then the second section is verse 6 and 7. And as we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, I want to call this section a world unwilling. Let's read it together. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, which he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. 
Now, I wrote several things down in my Bible as I was reading this and, and thinking about it this week. See, it's, it's easy for us to, to think about our unwillingness and our brokenness today. It's easy for us to go, yeah, that's true, right? That's the case. But when you read this, I don't know if you necessarily would say, yeah, that's a world unwilling back then. But that's because we have just glossed over things. That's because we don't know the context. That's what, because we don't understand what was really happening in those days. See, in those days, there was all kinds of things happening. And despite the Christmas carols and the Christmas cards where everything is perfect and everything is calm and everything is bright, that first Christmas, that first Advent, not everything was calm. Not everything was bright. The shepherds weren't all nestled up by a fire, cozying up with their sheep as like they were four-legged furniture. <laughs> the the they didn't hear about the angel. They weren't softly awoken um, from their sleep. And they mosey on all down to see the Christ child. And then before they go back, they hit up Waffle House. They, that didn't happen. Okay, This is a completely different thing. You see, Jesus was raised in first century Israel. And here's what you got to know about that. First of all, the, I wrote this down. The Babylon Empire had ruled. And then they took Israel as their as their own. And then the Persian Empire comes along and they defeat the Babylonian Empire. And guess what comes along with the spoils? Israel. And then comes the Roman upstart empire and they defeat the Persian Empire. And Israel is subjugated to 500 years of slavery. See, in those days, it wasn't so warm. It wasn't so bright. It wasn't so calm. So in those days, Caesar Augustus. Now, who is Caesar Augustus? Do we know? Do you know? Uh, let me tell you a little bit about this man. Caesar Augustus was a man, uh, actually, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was the very famous Roman Caesar. Julius Caesar took a liking into what was his given name, Gaius Octavius. And Gaius Octavius was, was just the nephew of the great Caesar, but he was adopted. And so Mark Antony and Gaius Octavius, they go to battle for the throne. And Gaius basically wins out. And so he's not a man to be trifled with. He's cruel. He's insensitive. And he only started to get a little bit more lenient as the years and his reign went along. He's very knowledgeable and learned. He was maybe one of the greatest Caesars Rome has ever had. And then Rome would give him the name Augustus. That's not his real name, but it was more of a title. And that name, literally, that title means God. So basically, in a nutshell, in our uh, vocabulary, it would be like this, saying, here's the president and God. Okay, so he was a man not to be trifled with. And he put into place a governor over the Syrian region. As we read in that scripture there, we're talking about Quirinius. And Quirinius was the governor. And we know this to be the case because in 17 AD, around there, there was a stone that was found. And on that stone was this little inscription. And it was in honor to the two-term governor Guess who? Quirinius. So the, the Bible, it's not just a collection of stories, but it's an historical document. So maybe today you're, you, you doubt things about Scripture. Maybe today you think, oh, that's just a book of stories. No, my friend, this is historical. And as Dr. Luke put these things together, he was extremely accurate and detailed. We can take this to the very bank. Well, I wrote another thing down about this time. In those days, there was this merciless military campaign called the Roman Empire. And they were merciless. 
And they would subjugate their, their slaves basically to whatever they wanted. And so they would put up these little mock governments and here, there, and everywhere. And they would look for a power-hungry, unethical man. And they find their man called Herod. And history would know him as Herod the Great, but there's nothing great about him. Okay, He kills his family. He kills anybody who would even relatively want to steal away his throne. And with the military might of Rome behind him, he, he is merciless and he taxes them to death. This is what's happening in those days. You thought you had it bad. You have no clue what it was like back in that. So you have Mary and Joseph, and they're anywhere between the ages of 12 and 16 years of age. And they're not going to Bethlehem because it's a family reunion. They're going because of this decree, this census, as we read, that is being put out. Caesar puts out this decree. But here's what's interesting. Never in the Gospel of Luke does Luke mention the prophecy of Micah. Never once. But here with this census and decree, you have the prophecy of Micah in the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years previously being fulfilled. And I think that's incredible because God is in the palace of Caesar and he's dictating things behind the scenes even when no one even knows the case to be true. So they're going for this to this decree in the census. And the reason why is because, uh, number one, they would find all of the available men to be in the army. And number two, taxes, taxes. Raise your hand, all of you who love taxes in the place here. One person raised their hand, okay? That's, they work for the IRS, I'm sure, okay? <laughs> the taxes in this time, get this, historians can validate this to be the case, 90% on the dollar was taxed. 90% on the dollar was taxed in that. And there were no file extensions, okay? If you did not pay your taxes in that culture, the Romans would come in, they'd bust your door down, they'd take your children, throw them into slavery, they would kill you, they would take your house, and that was the end of it. This was happening in those days. See, all was not calm. All was not bright. And Mary and Joseph, they're headed in the middle of winter. So they're facing cold rains, even perhaps snow. They're walking 80 to 90 miles to Bethlehem. And she's nine months pregnant. Fun times are had right here in Luke chapter 2. What an unwilling world we see right here, jumping off the pages. See, in their context, it would have been willing. I wrote this down. It would have been real easy for them to make excuses about unwillingness, right? I wrote these things down. If we don't conquer their land, someone will conquer us. Another thing I wrote down here was they, they might have said, if we worship God above all, th- all others, we won't get the good coming to us. If we don't take and take and take, we don't have enough. But those excuses, they sound so oh familiar to me and maybe to you. If I don't get in front of that woman with the cart full of stuff, I'm going to have to wait in this line even longer. And I'm going to be stuck in mire purgatory for the end of time. Right? If I I don't, you know, if I put God first, it's going to hurt me in my business. If I put God first, then my child's not going to be able to play sports on Sunday mornings. And they're not going to get on this championship team. And they're not going to play in the winter or summer Olympics in, in 2035. If I, if I give back to God out of my finances, if I give to God, if I put God first in my finances, I won't have enough. These are the unwilling excuses we offer, all too familiar. 
And, and, and what really this is, is it, it reveals a heart within us, an unwilling heart that says to God, hey, I know you have a plan for me, but I don't want that plan. And, and this is exactly what happened with Adam and Eve in original sin, right? Original sin said this, look, we can have everything in the garden, but you know what? You know what? I, I want the one thing I can't have. And see, uh, sins, one of sin's greatest fruits is the fact that it plays itself out in an unwilling heart. See, I read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and I could just note on the side, this is an unwilling world. But then when I look at verse 6 and 7, what I see here, I see on the other side of the coin, a very willing Savior. Look at it with me in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she, who was Mary, gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Have you ever heard of the song, Away in a Manger? How many of you have heard that song? You, you, you know the words? Away in a manger. No, come on, help me out. No crib for... The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the Keep going. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the Oh, precious Lord, baby Jesus on the hay, right? Just softly laying there. No, that's not what's happening. He's in a feeding trough, and it's not comfortable, and it's cold. No place fit for a king. You know, I, uh, one time I got to meet and go into the locker room of an NBA team, and I got to meet all the players, and I got to meet, they think, a lot of people think the greatest NBA player of all time. He's still playing today. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but you could probably guess who I'm talking about. And I learned something about this individual as I met him and I met his team and I got to talk to him for a few minutes. I learned this, that the NBA makes a special exemption for him and the fact that they will ship this, this specially made, basically big leather recliner every place he plays. And he's the only one that gets this chair, okay? And it is a chair fit for a king, but then you have Jesus in a feeding trough. The same Jesus in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, who is a part of the Holy Trinity, who speaks the world into existence in a feeding trough. In a completely weary, unwilling world. He snuggles up as a little baby, but he's also the same um, God who spoke the world and who did and created everything. And this, my friends, is unbelievable when you compare it to an NBA superstar sitting like a king. And, and Jesus enters the world in this regard. A willing Savior, he enters the world. You know, I've done a lot of weddings as a pastor. 
And the weddings always go well for the most part. But the receptions, well, those are a whole nother deal. I could write, I need to, I'm sitting down to write a book about my reception experiences and all the different things that happen. I could, I could make you laugh so hard about some of the things I've seen at receptions. One of my favorites is, you know, as, as weddings have progressed and gotten more and more expensive and more and more and more of a show, the reception, they announce the bride and the groom, you know, the bridal parties, and like they'll come in with these, songs, okay? And it's like they're five seconds of fame, all right? And it's like they've been waiting for months for this moment to be announced. And sometimes these, these crowds are two, three, four hundred people. And um, this one party, they announced the bride and the, the groom parties, and the, the groomsmen are getting introduced. And this one guy, I could tell all day long he'd been practicing this dance move. And so he's going to come out, they're going to announce him, and he's going to do this dance move. So he comes out, and I'm waiting, and here it comes, and he gets it, and the spotlight's on him, and everyone's clapping, and he does his dance move, and the entire backside of his pants rip from the top all the way down here. And he suffers the embarrassment, his five seconds of fame, all the way down, his pants are up, and he walks around the rest of the reception with some things exposed that shouldn't have been exposed at a wedding reception, Okay. And you have Jesus coming in this regard. He could have come in a palace as a king. He could have come as a fully-fledged adult, grown individual. He could have bypassed being a toddler. He could have bypassed going through puberty. That in of itself would have made me want to come as a, as a man, right? But he comes as a baby. And we're appalled by this, that he would choose such a thing. But let me just ask you for a moment. Here's the, here's the question. Maybe we just look at it the wrong way. Maybe if we look at it from his perspective instead of ours, it would change our perspective. That a willing servant would look at anything that we have on earth as nothing in comparison to the kingdom he has in heaven. That no matter a king or a manger, it's all the same to him. Why not be born in a manger? Why not be born to parents who can't even find a room for him in the end? And what's so cool about this whole entire willing Savior is that he would come, he would step out of heaven, and what he would do is he would humble himself because it would be important to us. And here's why it's important to us. I think it's hard for us to relate to a king. It's hard for us to relate to someone who's extremely popular, or someone who is a, a sports star. I don't know if you've had your opportunities to meet sports stars. I've had a couple opportunities to do that. And one of the sports stars that I once met was Josh Hamilton. Josh Hamilton, uh, at the time when I met him, was the reigning MVP in Major League Baseball. He had one of the greatest Major League Baseball seasons in the history of the game the year that I met him. We're at a conference, my wife and I with a bunch of friends, and it's announced he's going to be there and he's going to be signing a book. And my wife says, hey, I want you to go wait in line. I'm not a big like wait in line, get my book signed kind of guy. OK, but because I'm like, wow, they put their pants on one leg at a time. That's at least my attitude. But it, deep down inside, I'm like, I'm just not so cool as them. So I don't want to sit that close to them. That's kind of sometimes what I think about. And so my wife says, hey, I want to go get our book signed by him. All right, fine, we'll wait in line. So we wait in line like for like 30 minutes. And there's somebody next to him, a handler, who is giving, taking the books from people and he's signing the books. And Sarah's like, you do know that I went to high school with him. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking like, there's no way he's going to know. You. Like, come on, you know, he's a superstar and who are we? So we finally get to the front of the line. And, and so I give him my book and he says, well, who, who do you want me to make it out to? Ray, and he writes... He writes Josh, and he writes a, something down underneath of it and gives me the book back. And then Sarah gets to the front of the line, 
And they're like, who do you want me to write to? And she says, Sarah. How do you spell it? With an H. And he looks up, and it looked like he had just seen his lost long sister. I'm not lying. Sarah! They stop the entire autograph session. He stands up, walks around the desk. He takes his arm around Sarah. He says, let me introduce you to my wife, who Sarah also knew. And so they both start talking and da-da-da. And, oh, Ray, come on over here. Come on over here. Well, you know. Come on over here. And so we're all talking and hanging out. And, and finally, the conversation dies down and Josh breaks away. And he's like 6'4". I mean, he's a big guy. No wonder he's such a good uh, uh, talent. And he looks at me and he says, so Ray, he's like, you still playing ball? <laughs> I'm like thinking, what do you mean? Like softball or <laughs> like, like, no, I'm not playing ball. I'm working like most people in this world. I, I, we can't play professional sports like you, you know? So Jesus, he comes in such a way that we can relate to. He comes as a baby so we can relate to that situation. So we can relate to someone who, who, who's small. We can relate to someone who, who comes unannounced. We can relate to someone who isn't that much different than maybe how we came into the world. And that's a willing Savior. And I wrote down here this, that he who is limitless was willing to limit himself. C.S. Lewis, he once said this, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. And that, my friends, is incredible. He would limit himself and he would be willing to do several things. I, I want to list these out for you on the screen. and I just want to go through them with you one by one. First of all, he was willing to go through the, the experience of having a human body and encounter growing pains for us. He was willing to obey his father even when it was hard, never complaining one time. He would fast for 40 days. How many of you fasted for 40 days, never complained once, even in the face of temptation? Nobody has done that. He was willing to be made fun of, to be lied about, to be betrayed, rejected. And rejection is the thing that we fear the most. He was willing to allow humans he had created to nail him to a cross for his flesh to be ripped out, to shed blood so that he would redeem humanity. He would, he would allow us to be forgiven of our sins because of his sins would be the atonement of our of our our sins, and that it would heal the brokenness in our life if we would turn to him. He was willing to endure the Father's silence while he took on the sins of the world. He was willing to leave heavenly riches for poverty. He was willing to leave the great white throne for a manger. He was willing not only to die, but to rise again on the third day so that we would have an opportunity to experience new life. He was willing. Paul David Tripp, he says it this way. He says, Christmas, it's all about a willing Savior born to rescue unwilling people from themselves. The Christmas, it's all about willing Savior born to rescue unwilling people from themselves. And here's the good news from you in the balcony to you on the floor this morning. The good news is just as much as he was willing in that, that scene, he is willing today. He's willing to forgive your greatest, deepest, darkest secrets. He's willing to put your past in the past. He's willing to help you in a time of trouble. He's willing to help you in a frightful situation. He's willing to help you be patient 
He's willing to help you in a time of grief and sorrow and pain that you experience that nobody knows about, but right now you're silently hurting. He's willing. And when you know this, when you feel this, when you experience this, this transforms your life and it does something remarkable from the inside out in you and it totally changes you. One such transformation happened to a man. He, he, entered, he met this willing Savior through the testimony of followers of Jesus Christ. And one day, in the early 200 to 300 AD period, he would come to Savior and he would take all of his family's wealth and he would leverage all of his family's wealth and he would begin to feed the poor. He'd begin to set up ministries for mentally challenged individuals. The first ministry ever to be done like that. He would pay the dowries of certain women and their, their opportunities so they could get married in that culture. He would often disguise himself at night. He'd wear red and white. He would put these different things, presents for the poor on their windowsills or sometimes even near their chimney. And later on, the Dutch would call this man St. Nicholas. And I'm going to stop right there. But you know who that man was. And I want to ask you a question. Does this world need Christians like that who are willing? Yes, it does. When you watch the news... When you interact in this world, there are more Christians that need to step up and be willing just like that. So I want to ask you, would you be willing because of a Savior who is willing for you? Would you be willing to leverage what you have for the good of others? Would you be willing to serve and to love those who are unlovable? Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to worship Christ this Christmas even when there are problems today? Would you be willing? You know, uh, there were problems at the first advent. There were problems with Joseph. There were problems with Mary, right? There were problems with Jesus. There are always problems that you experience in life. Would you be willing to worship in those problems? You know, later on, the brother of Jesus, James, he would write this in James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. He said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Would you be willing to worship in those moments? To worship in a problem? How many of you have got that figured out? I'm included in that. You know, this last week I was thinking about that and I was writing this sermon. And then I was also then at the same time mentally struggling with some of the problems that I was facing in this church and all the problems with some relationships I'm involved in. You know, just, just some normal things that are going on. And then I'm trying to write my message and then I'm hopping back to this issue and I'm just like back and forth, back and forth. And then this thought, like I have this internal dialogue. I don't know if you ever do that. And, and it's like, Ray, are you having problems? Shouldn't you worship? And then it's like another thought. It's like, well, yeah, but I'm writing this stupid message and talking about being willing, okay, to worship. And, and then it's like, but Ray, isn't this what you should be doing? Yeah, but I have to write this stupid message, okay? And I got to get this done and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you know? Would you be willing to worship, worship Jesus? And there's plenty of problems going to happen. It's the week before Christmas, Right? You're not gonna you're not gonna have enough energy, maybe. You're not gonna have enough money, it's gonna run out, maybe, for presents. 
Not all your family are going to be where you want them to be. They're not going to say all that you want to say. They're not going to hold their tongue the way you want them to hold their tongue. Amen? Right? But would you be willing to worship Christ? Even in your problems. Another one is, would you be willing to engage in conversation? So, oh, I'm an introvert, Ray. Would you be willing to invite people to our Christmas weekend? Would you be willing? And finally, would you be willing for the first time in your life to tell Christ, I've been unwilling my entire life, but today I'm willing to give you my life. I give you my control. My life is broken and I need a Savior. I've done wrong. I I repent today and I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And here's the good news. Just, Just lean in for this. The good news is this that he is just as willing today as he was 2,000 years ago. And just like a mom, hearing the cry of her six-year-old, walking through a bunch of people, walking upstairs, pushing people aside, getting to her baby girl and rescuing an unwilling six-year-old, he will do the same for you every single time because he is a willing Savior.